0: Um, We're going to finish Genesis tonight, so if you have your Bible, you can open... She laughed. I saw that. (laughs) We're going to finish it even if we have to summarize chapter 50. (laughs) Genesis 49, if you have a Bible, if you need a Bible to follow along with us, uh, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they'll hand a Bible to you so that you can follow along. Um, There's a lot of black on this page, so I'm going to skim through this quickly, just highlights from the announcements and things going on here. Uh, Men's breakfast is this Saturday morning at 8 a.m. There's a sign up in the back. Pastor Bobby's going to be sharing with us this month. He's going to share a study with us called Finishing Well. So uh, guys, if you have yet to sign up for that, um, please do so. Also, Oasis, Older Adults Sharing in Spirit, uh, will meet this Saturday, October 27th at 12 p.m. in the Salad Ground Café. Uh, so you can sign up in the lobby for that uh, this Sunday morning this coming Sunday morning um, pastor Eddie Pinero from Calvary Chapel of Milford in Milford, Pennsylvania will be our guest teacher at both the 9 and 11 a.m Services, so come on out and uh, hear pastor Eddie and what he has to share You can pray for me too because i'm going To Milford and i'm filling in for pastor Eddie You know, it's kind of one of those you had logs kind of moments crossing there, but uh, the next uh, marriage Bible Study, the November Bible Study uh, for the marriage couples is, is in 13 days. It's Tuesday, November 6th. So uh, a week and six days from tonight at 7 p.m., all married couples are invited to attend that. Also, the high school youth retreat, November 9th through 11th at Bowdoin Park. All high schoolers, 9 to 12th grade, are invited to join us. At $65. includes lodging and food for the weekend. And then also, a um, new announcement is that a, a Sunday school teacher... Vacancy um, has been made in the first and second grade at the second Sunday service So if you are one who's interested in teaching the Bible to first and second graders Uh, There's an opening and an opportunity and you know, we have a lot of Awana announcements from time to time But it's seldom that we announce a Sunday school opening Um, There's a great sweetness to the fellowship there and usually people that grab those places hold on to them, you know, so uh, um, Jump if you want it. And so uh, there's a, 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 a Thing for that as well um, if you're interested in that, I would ask you, you could do this, take one of the visitor cards out of the seat pocket in front of you, write it on there that you are interested with your name and stuff, and either leave it on the seat, put it in the offering box, um, just so that you're kind of making a note for yourself, whatever. Don't put it back in the pocket, it will not be found if you do that, but you can do that. And then, um, and then next Wednesday night, um, uh, Pastor Billy Penna from Calvary Chapel, is it Grace? I always get these mixed up. He, he's in Rockland County, New York. Uh, he's going to be filling in next Wednesday night, and then two weeks from tonight, we are going to begin our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. So, uh, please be in prayer for me for that, and and just think about maybe someone that you might want to bring along. You know, I don't did they put the card up there? There was so much discussion over the subtitle of this study; it would make your head spin. But the the the, the you know, they prevailed, they won. It's, you know, is there life before death? You know, and kind of the whole uh, theme of the book is why are we here on this earth? And God did an amazing thing in preparing Solomon and and giving him resources to be able to explore that question and exhaustively and then he wrote a book about it and he put it in the Bible so God put his fingerprint and signature on the answer to that question and it's just kind of the thing that people are striving after to find out why are we here what is life all about And Ecclesiastes answers that question in an amazing way. So if you know someone who's struggling right now, uh, someone who is is just going through it and they need answers, invite them to come out on Wednesday nights uh, as we go through that and hear the wisest one who apparently sinned against his own wisdom, but he wrote it down anyway (laughs) so that we would have it. So we're in Genesis 49 tonight. Um, We're going to be picking up in verse 13 in the chapter, and let's again just pray and ask God to speak to us. And so, Lord, on the other side of uh, just all the activity that you've put before us and opportunities for fellowship, Lord, as we settle our hearts and for your word, we, we do ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our, our guide and our help, O oh Lord. And so we pray you take these things, O oh Lord, the mirror of the word, and that you would cause it to uh, reveal the things that we need and also the power to see those things changed. So help us tonight, Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We find ourselves in the middle of chapter 49 looking at the uh, dying words of a patriarchal prophet, and that would be the man Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, this man who gave birth to 12 sons, which will become the 12 tribes of this nation that God is building that represents his kingdom in a physical way on the earth and the channel through which heaven is revealed to earth. And as Jacob now is in his final days, really probably his final day, his final moments, he's gathered his 12 sons around his bed and he is pronouncing um, their prophetic destiny. In a sense, he is giving them um, his i guess the spiritual will last will and testament to them as he goes Uh, Name by name, and he declares to them the things concerning their personality and what they will become in their their future, also their descendants, what will become of their individual family lines, and then even of their territory, where they will uh, live, the borders of their individual areas once God gives to them the land that he promised to Abraham uh, all those years ago. And so this section of scripture is drenched in the prophetic voice and the symbolic voice Uh, It's a very intimate moment as Jacob's sons are gathered and listening to their father speak There are moments of intensity uh, And 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 very clear tension as he uh, Pronounces upon some of them things that aren't easy to hear or easy to say uh, That aren't full of great hope But then there's others that are filled with amazing hope and amazing awe and so he's going through on the whole thing now one of the things that I personally love about the Bible, and you probably too, being that you're here on a Wednesday night and not watching the World Series or doing something else, uh, is that in, in many ways the Bible is like this amazing prism, you know, and you you hold this this book, this truth, and you hold it up in the light uh, of God's spirit, and when and when the light hits it, it bends it, and it. Just breaks it into a thousand different colors, you know, and and whatever angle the light is hitting it at will change the color It will give it a different hue and it will show a different thing something some other beautiful angle to it And 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 so when we look at the word of god There's so many different angles that we can shine light at it and it shows us different things, you know so we can look at it from the angle of Uh, you know, history and and the angle of culture and the angle of prophecy, uh, you know, and and, and just different things, theology, man, you know, what are we? And we can kind of look at the the Word of God from all these different angles and all these different ways, and it shows different things. But probably one of the the, the most important angles that we can uh, take when we look at the Word is the angle of personal application, of asking the question in every passage, in every chapter, in every verse, is what does this have to say to me? What does this have to speak into my life? Why did God want this preserved in a way wherein when I read it, even so many thousand years after it was recorded or when these events took place, what does God want to say to me in his living word today? The Bible tells us in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable and then it goes on to say for correction reproof instruction that the person of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work so what that tells us is that everything that's in the Bible has something to say to me now that adds to my life or that helps me in some way to understand God's will for my life uh, or, or some other um, way of that. And so what does this portion of the Bible where Jacob is talking to his sons, what does it have to say to you and I? Another thing that the Bible tells us is that the Bible not only is it like a prism that just reflects all these amazing colors, but it also is like a mirror. It says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I think it's verse 18, I'll read it to you, it says this, it says that we all with open face, it just means that there's nothing covering our eyes, that our eyes have been opened, beholding or looking as in a glass, that's a mirror, so as looking in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. And so it's saying that the word of God is like a mirror. Now, it's different than a mirror on a wall. Because a mirror on a wall only serves the intent of revealing truth. That's all it does. It can only tell me what what I'm seeing. I once stayed with a, a, a gentleman for a couple of months when we first relocated down into the downstate area from Rochester. And, and as I was remodeling the apartment that we were gonna live in, I was staying with this guy and he had a bathroom. And when you opened the shower curtain in his bathroom, the entire wall that was adjacent to the opening of the shower was just a mirror. And if you didn't take a long enough shower to fog that thing up, then when you open the shower curtain, you were just hit with a very unpleasant dose of truth. And it was awful. You know, it was just like nobody, nobody wants to be confronted with facts in that abrupt of a manner, you, you know, coming out of the shower like that. And it was, just, it was just this horrible experience because it just told the truth, but it could do nothing about it. But the mirror of the word is different because when we look into the mirror of the word... What's reflected back is two things. Not just the truth of, of what we are, but at the same time, simultaneously, is the truth of what we will be when God does his work inside of us. Um, Georgia has an older brother, my wife, and um, he is just probably one of the most genetically enhanced people on the planet. I mean, he is just physically gifted in every way. If you were to take Tom Brady... And Will Smith and shove them together in one and give them the youthful vibrance of a Matt Damon it would be it would be George's brother you know and one time I had the pleasure of going to a Yankee game with him just the two of us and it was the only time and hopefully the last time in my life that I ever feel like Danny DeVito in Twins If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You put Danny DeVito next to Arnold Schwarzenegger and then put them out in public and watch what happens. And that's what it was like. I mean, we walked along, and I'm telling you, every woman and man, Turned around and looked at him as they walked by, going, "What in the world is that?" And I just kept saying, "They're, look, they're talking about me. They're, you know, they're looking at me, right?" And the whole thing. Now, now imagine for a minute. You know, you kind of open that same shower door and you see that big mirror, and, and you're confronted with the facts. But right next to you is the perfect picture of perfection. You know, you would look at that, and you're like, "Oh, this is just getting worse." But see, the mirror of the word. It's not there to shame us into just revealing the truth, but rather when God puts us in front of his mirror, he is showing us, yes, what we are, but he shows us at the same time what it is that he's wanting to change us into, and the word of God supplies the power and the direction and the vision and the ability for us to become what we are not. And so anytime we look at the word of God from the angle of God, what does this have to say to me? we have the opportunity of looking at the word as a mirror that reflects something back at us that is for us an opportunity to maybe see flaws in us, but also to realize that there's hope, that those flaws aren't eternal flaws, that they can change. Now, what's happening in our text here is that the 12 sons of Jacob are essentially standing in front of the mirror. They're standing in front of their father and they're hearing about themselves, both what they are and what they will be. And we have this amazing, incredible opportunity tonight to stand in front of the mirror with them because we get to put their shoes on and hear what a spiritual assessment is of these men. And the good news for you and me is that this isn't final, is that if we see ourselves in these sons of Jacob, those that are governed by God, and God reveals to us a flaw, then in that flaw there is hope that he's also going to work in us and he's going to bring change, that we're not going to stay in that position. And so I'm hoping tonight to create in you the feeling of standing in front of that mirror and maybe in the process of it you'll see something that you say, that's an unpleasant dose of truth. I feel like I'm standing in front of a full-size mirror in bright lights. But listen, the idea behind it is not to make us feel ashamed but rather to see the things that God wants to change and have hope that there's a direction and a way wherein God can make those things that they no longer exist. And so uh, as we resume, we've already looked at um, three of the sons. We looked at, or four, basically. We looked at Reuben, who was the unbridled potential. We looked at Simeon and Levi, who were the emotional wrecking balls. And we looked at Judah, who was the unlikely triumphant. And I won't review those uh, because they're already recorded and you can access them. But where we resume tonight is with the remaining sons. And so we're going to look at the remaining sons that are here. And then we'll see the death uh, of Jacob, the period of mourning for him, and then the closure to the book of Genesis. And so we'll move through these uh, rather quickly and see the snapshots of these sons. We begin in verse 13. With the man Zebulun. And so if you draw your attention to verse 13 in chapter 49, it says this. It says that Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. And he shall be for a haven of ships and his border shall be unto Zidon. Now, Zebulun, if you're taking notes and you're you're naming these people and putting yourself in their shoes, Zebulun is a bright spot in the list. And he would be known as the satisfied The name Zebulun itself, it means connection, or it means to dwell with. And he got his name from his mother Leah at a period of her life where she was desperately seeking a connection with her husband Jacob, and she couldn't get it. He was so infatuated with Rachel, and he kept putting Leah to the side, and she longed for this connection. And when she gave birth to Zebulun, she really believed that that was going to be the 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 catalyst that would cause her husband to connect with her and so she gave him this name zebulun so it it comes out of a desire to connect or a desire to dwell with someone having intimate fellowship like you would see in a man uh, who is is cleaving to his wife we see in the future of zebulun as he would uh, then become a tribe and and gain territory in the land that zebulun would be situated positionally way up in the north just like jacob says here when he says that zebulun will dwell at the haven of the sea that he'll be for a haven of the ships and his border will be unto zidon and so positionally the tribe of zebulun was way up in the northern part of the land on the west coast right on the mediterranean and they had the northern border that they shared with what would today be syria And so, what they were as a tribe is that they were a port of import and export in a beautiful area up on the coast. And what we know of Zebulun moving into their future is that there was really nothing excessively triumphant or excessively tragic that happened or uh, that Zebulun was involved in in any particular way. They were just a tribe that was a conduit of blessing into the nation and an exporter of the produce of the land to other nations. And so they were just a content, drama-free people that lived in a pleasant place, that were satisfied with their inheritance and their place in the land, Essentially, or because of it, they were blessed, they were enriched as any conduit would be because of the massive flow of resources through it in both directions. And they were just the picture of purpose and contentment. And that was the tribe of Zebulun. That's what they were. And, and what Zebulun represents for you and I today as we put ourselves in his shoes, is Zebulun represents the born-again, spirit-filled Christian who learns very early in their spiritual life to be satisfied in the abiding life. As Bobby's been sharing with us on Sunday mornings what it means to just abide in Jesus Christ and to abide in his love and to just remain in him by faith and to receive from him his joy and his purpose and to commune with him in fellowship. And there are some Christians who at a very early time in their christian life they come into that relationship and and they realize that they found their place they they may be never the king they're maybe never the great leader they're also never the one that's experiencing deep lows and trauma in their life they're just resting in jesus christ they know their place And thus, they're a conduit of blessing. God uses their life as he sees fit in one direction towards men, and he uses their life in the other direction as he brings things to heaven from them through men, or from men through them, you know. So it's just the satisfied person. And there's a beautiful attractiveness in someone whose name is Zebulun, or someone who just abides in the Lord and and rests in him. And you see it commonly in older saints. You know, they go through the roller coaster years. They have their ups and downs. And they come into that place where they just, yes, Jesus, it's you. It's not what I do. It's not what I obtain. It's not what I have. I'm, I'm content in you. And it happens in elders, But it's so beautiful when someone who's younger can just take that place and say, I want to be a Zebulun. I want to rest in the Lord. And so uh, Jacob moves from Zebulun. And then he moves on to Issachar in verses 14 and 15. And Issachar is one who we call the almost free. Issachar is the almost free. It says of him, it says in verse 14, Issachar is a strong ass, that's a donkey, couching down between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good and the land that it was pleasant and bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute Now, I love how much the Bible can say in so few words, don't you? Basically, there's three descriptions of the personality of Issachar given by Jacob here First of all, he's given the, um, the, 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 the adjective of being strong Basically, a strong person is someone who knows how to make things happen And we all know strong people in our lives or in this world. They just have a a competence about them, and and they know how to to make make it work. The second thing we're told is that he's like a donkey. And a donkey in the Bible is the symbol of stubbornness. And so someone who's stubborn is someone who, once they make a decision about something or make up their mind about something, it's very difficult to sway them in another direction. Whether that's a good something or a bad something, they won't change because they're stubborn. So he's strong and he's stubborn. But then the third thing that it tells us is that he's crouched between two burdens. And the idea behind that is that he's conflicted, that he can't make a choice between the two burdens that he has on either side, which one he's going to carry, and thus he is stuck right in the middle, crouch down between these two burdens, and that's a person who's conflicted. They can't make a decision. Now, that's a terrible combination of character traits. To be strong and stubborn makes a great leader. To be strong and conflicted makes a great follower. But to be strong, stubborn, and conflicted makes someone completely useless. And thus, if Zebulun is tame... Issachar is Taz because he's just going in circles. He can't figure out where he's supposed to go. Now, two burdens are defined for us there in verse 15. It says that he saw that the rest was good and that the land was pleasant and, and and it's but is what's implied, he bowed his shoulder to bear and he became a servant unto tribute or unto taxing. So on the one hand, there was a glorious freedom and rest. That was one of the burdens. But on the other hand, there was this taxing slavery. And he was stuck in between these two burdens of glorious rest and taxing slavery. And what Jacob says of him ultimately is that he got stuck under taxing slavery. Now, if we shine the light of the New Testament on this concept, we can kind of make some sense of how it might apply to you and I. Because in the New Testament, there are two burdens that are defined for us or that are expressed. One of them is the burden of religion. The Apostle Paul describes it for us in Galatians chapter 5. He says this, chapter 5, verse 1. He says to Christians, Stand fast or hold your ground, therefore, in the freedom wherewith Jesus Christ has made you free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's the first yoke. Now he defines what that yoke is. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you are circumcised, that is, if you are given to a legal, lawful, custom-driven relationship with God, where your relationship with God is based on what you do, your duties, your devotions, your performance, that if you are circumcised, then Christ will profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law, and Christ has become of no effect to you, whosoever you are, that are justified by the law, for you are fallen from grace. So one of the yokes is called the yoke of bondage, and it's the yoke of religion. It's a yoke of having a relationship with God that's based upon my performance, that's based upon my ability to do or not do the things that God says, my ability to keep custom and to keep devotions and to keep lists and tabs and to earn my way into God's favor and to constantly be seeking his blessing based upon what I'm going to give him in reciprocation for what he's giving to me and paul calls that a yoke of bondage you're under a taxing you're under a heaviness and it's a tough place to be the other yoke that the new testament talks about is a yoke that was spoken of specifically by jesus christ in matthew chapter 11 verse 28 he said this he said come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden that is that you're yoked with the other yoke And he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. There's the other burden. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And he says that you will find rest for your souls. So the other yoke that the Bible talks about is the yoke of freedom in Jesus Christ. It's the yoke of a relationship with God that's based upon faith. In what he provided for me in dying for my sins upon a cross, declaring me righteous because of what he did and not what I do, and then me just receiving that in simplicity of faith as a gift and enjoying a relationship with God and the blessing of God not dependent upon what I can do or be or keep or perform or reciprocate my way into. And that's what you and I have been given the privilege of. Now, here's the the, the sticky part. Is that every one of us has a choice which one of those two yokes we're going to take up. But you can't take up both. It's either one or the other. And I believe every Christian spends some time crouching between two burdens. God, what do you expect of me? Do you want me to carry the load of the law? Or am I free to take the yoke of freedom in Jesus Christ? And we wrestle with that. We go through a, a season of our Christian life where I, I can't figure out if it's all grace or if it's part grace and some effort. And I'm crouching between these two things. Sadly, there are some Christians that choose religion and performance and adherence to relationship. And I'll say this and then move on. And to choose nothing is to take the heavy yoke. That's what Issachar did. He saw that the rest was glorious, but he couldn't give himself to faith to just trust God and to walk in the blessing of God based upon grace. And thus he was almost free. And maybe tonight, some of us here were in an almost free place. We're crouching between two burdens: to take the full step of just trusting God completely and not feeling like I have to pray my way into His favor or Work my way into his favor. Amazing. We see in this man, Issachar. Well, as we move away from Issachar, who missed freedom by 14 inches, we come to the next son, and that's Dan in verse 16. Notice what it says. It says that Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. The name Dan means judge, and that's his name if you're taking notes. Dan is the judge, not the home run hitter. And Dan, it says, shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that bites the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backwards. And then a sigh of, uh, of something comes out of Jacob. He says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Dan is the judge. I don't know if you have ever met this person in the body of Christ. Have you ever met the judge? that sits in the same pew as you in church. You know who I'm talking about, right? The one who has it all figured out and the one who has every one all figured out and the one who is constantly comparing themselves with everyone else and in the process of that elevating themselves over those people that they're insinuate by insinuation degrading through their, you know, silent judgment over the things that they're doing. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? This propensity that we have to judge one another, to become the judge. I, I was here today, and, and there's a funny thing that happened, is that somebody, uh, one of the sisters in the church, brought a pumpkin pie for, uh, for the office staff to enjoy, you know? And, and it's a funny thing what a pumpkin pie can do when you bring it to a group of people that don't all know each other, you know, super intimately, or that know each other, you know, to some degree, you know? Because, you know, everybody has different eating habits, right? And so, you know, some people, you know, they don't eat sugar, sweets, that kind of thing, right? And, and so the feeling is, right, generally, is that the person who doesn't eat those things is judging everyone who does, And so there's this feeling, right, like, like that, oh, if I eat that, I'm, you know, then I'm not as healthy as you or, you know, that I've got some kind of a problem or something like that, you know, and, and, and and then there's this whole thing, but here's the flip. And this is the, this is where it got me today is that they were walking down the hall with this pumpkin pie and all the group of them, they were going by and they brought the pie and they said, Nick, and then, and then someone said, no, 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 Nick doesn't eat sugar. I became the judged. I was being judged, and I thought, "Isn't this a turning of the tables?" You know, it's so so. It's a funny thing how everybody, nobody's safe anymore. It's like, "What do you eat? Nothing." <laughs> That's how you win, by the way. That's how you elevate yourself in the whole thing. Listen to this. Listen to the, the wisdom of the Bible. It's Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse twelve. It says this. It says that they. Measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. A very diplomatically stated point of wisdom by the Apostle Paul is that they that judge themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves are not wise. And there is a folly in that very much and absolutely. When you and I compare ourselves with other people, one of two things is going to happen. We are going to either always feel inadequate or we're going to feel falsely elevated. We're going to feel inadequate because we're not as good as someone else or we're going to feel falsely elevated as though we're better than someone else. I read a great quote today. I'll share it with you. I hope I don't screw it up, but it said something like this. It said that when we compare someone else's highlight reel with our behind the scenes, We always feel inadequate. Isn't that a great quote? I mean, people always put their best forward when you're looking at their Instagram or you're looking at their car that they drive or you're looking at the way that they dress. I mean, that's their highlight reel. You know, that's prepared, it's trimmed, it's edited, it's Photoshopped, you know? That's their highlights. We live constantly in our behind the scenes. I know what I really am. I'm trying to put two pieces of clothing together. I wore white pants last week. Don't do that. You know? And and, and my behind-the-scenes never looks as good as someone else's highlight reel. And so if I'm comparing myself with other people, I have the the, the potential of always feeling inadequate and never recognizing that we're all screw-ups trying to figure out where we are in life. On the other hand, if I happen to maybe have it together a little bit more than the person I'm comparing myself with, then I can feel falsely elevated. The problem is that when I'm in either of those two places, it is impossible for me to be unconditionally loving the other person. And what did jesus say he said judge nothing before the time and he emphatically asked of us that we love one another The apostle paul said in second corinthians chapter 4. He said that I don't even judge myself and I love that that's paul That meant paul was honest enough to say I don't even know why I do the things that I do much less how in the world am I going to figure out why you're doing what you're doing It's a trap It's a trap and maybe tonight the mirror of the word you say "Ooh, I have that problem Here's the problem if you judge if you judge people by their appearance by the house They live in by the way their kids behave if the way they uh, the way they are impressive or not impressive What they talk like or act like or what they eat if you judge someone else the Bible says this right here It says that you're a serpent by the way. Do you know what a serpent by the way is? It's something you avoid if you see a snake in the path, you get away, you turn around and go the other direction. And if you're that kind of person, you're going to be avoided by others. It also says you're the enemy of productivity. The one who bites the horse's heels is the one that stops power from moving forward. And judgment, judge people in the body of Christ, stop productivity. And it also says that they ca- he causes the rider to go backwards. That means that they're fighting against those that they're supposed to be fighting with. We're to elevate one another. We're to push each other upward. We're to bear with the infirmities of the weak. We're not to judge and knock down and compare ourselves and elevate or put ourselves down. The funny thing about Dan as a tribe is that Dan was the capital of idolatry up in the north, and they were the furthest from Jerusalem, the temple where the presence of the Lord was. And I think there's something in that. Is the people that judge in the body of Christ, usually there's something going on under the surface that nobody else knows about. There's some idolatry, some false idol, something set up inside. And usually they're not walking too close to the Lord. But Dan heard these strong words from his father, uh, Jacob. He moves on from Dan and he talks to Gad in verse 19. It says that Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome in the last. I called Gad the storm rider. It says that a troop will overcome him, but he will overcome at the end. The word Gad means troop. And you know when Gad was named? He was named at a point where they were outnumbered. They were starting to have all these kids. Jacob's wife, Leah, was popping out kids like a human Pez machine. You know, it was like one after the next, after the next. And then they started getting the handmaids involved and they started popping out babies. And all of a sudden, this family found themselves in a place where they were going, oh my goodness, how do you take care of this? And and Leah literally looked at this boy and said, Gad, it means a troop, and it means a troop that comes. But I love the symbolism that's here because I don't know the reference historically or the fulfillment prophetically of what it means when it says a troop will overcome him, but he will overcome at the last. But I can say that I can relate to this sentiment that's being expressed here. Because about 10 years ago, in my own life, you know, I realized that there's way more that I'm responsible for than is humanly possible for me to steward properly. I cannot keep up with all the things in my life. We went hiking on Monday up at Catterskill Falls, and somehow I got out in front of the entire group. And, and, and in a moment of, you know, concern, I just turned around to see how everyone was doing, and I saw the Von Trapp family lined up behind me, you know, my wife and all five of my kids. And I literally, literally, I said, GAD! You know and and there's this amazing thing that happens and some of you can relate to this and maybe some of you It's not your thing But you may be in a season of your life right now where you look at all of the things that you're responsible for And a sense of being overcome Is what you feel This is too much for me. I cannot Properly steward all that i'm responsible for and you have a fear inside That it's only a matter of days before everything just comes crashing down like a house of cards and you're going to look like a fool I want you to hear a promise from God tonight if you're Gad looking in the mirror right now. Is that you may feel right now like you're being overwhelmed and overcome. But if you let God sustain that load with you, you'll come to a point where you say, I will overcome in the end. God is going to sustain you. God is going to hold you. In Jesus Christ, you're going to make it. Gad is going to make it through. The next he moves on to is Asher. And Asher is the rich man in verse 20. It says, out of Asher, Asher means happy, blessed, his bread shall be fat and he shall yield royal dainties. The only reference biblically in this verse to Asher is that of the bread. And the bread in the Bible is always a reference to the word of God. And thus, if we were tonight as Christians in this age to stand in Asher's shoes, the voice of Jacob would be whispering to you and I as if you want to be fat and not in the sense of girth, but in the sense of, you know, richness, spiritually, inwardly, substance of life, abundance of life, than be a dealer in bread, a dealer in the word of God. Fall in love with the Bible. I feel sorry when I hear a Christian come to me and say, I don't understand the Bible. It doesn't make sense to me. Or I get nothing out of it when I read it on my own. What I can tell you personally is that I had no, no one come alongside and teach me how, you know, to do this or anything, you know. But I can tell you that from the time that I got saved, I fell in love with the Bible, and every good thing that has come out of my life has come from a love for, for the Word of God. There is nothing more valuable. I mean, you read the Proverbs, it says that over and over and over again, and it is absolutely true. Twice in my life I've had this experience, and it's treasured in my memory is where a person I know is wealthy in the things of this world, they have a lot of money, they're rich and are rich in substance, have come to me and said, you are rich. I'm not wealthy. (laughs) I don't have the world's abundance at my fingertips. And I don't have all the Bible either. I'm not some spiritual super saint. But I can tell you that I do love the Word of God and that there's nothing more enriching to a life Than to love the bible and if you're a person here tonight and you don't love the bible I would encourage you immediately even now while i'm speaking to you Pray to god and ask him to give you a love for the bible for the word of god Because it's the richest thing that you can possess He moved from asher to naphtali and naphtali is called the counselor He says that naphtali is a hind let loose And he gives goodly words or he gives goodly counsel. I love the description here because the word Naphtali or the name Naphtali means wrestling. And again, it was during a time where Leah was wrestling with Rachel over the devotion of Jacob, the two wives, you know, and that was where he got his name. So Naphtali means wrestling. The description of Naphtali here is that he's like a deer that's been set free. And so the idea is that you have a deer that's been enclosed in an environment that it doesn't belong in. So you have a deer that's longing to be out there, but is stuck in here. But once it's set free, in every way that deer comes to life, emotionally, physically, spiritually, it's in its proper environment, And now that deer is free to jump and leap and and run and be what it was made to be. It was bound up. Now it's free. And then the result of that, it says that he gives good counsel. And there are Naphtali's in the body of Christ. There's Naphtali's in different positions in the body of Christ. If you and I stand in his shoes, maybe you can relate and you know what it's like to be wrestling in yourself To be wrestling with God and even wrestling with your emotions because you're trapped in something in your life that you know inside you were not made for. Maybe it's an emotional disposition. You just feel like in your mind you can't break free. There's something holding you back. Maybe it's in your position in life. You know, I know sometimes mothers feel this way. They just feel like they weren't created to be a mom and that they're chained to kids and to a basket of laundry and to a house that needs cleaning. Sometimes it's a man or a woman that's in a career that they just feel like, I got stuck in this. This chose me. I didn't choose this. And there's a wrestling that happens. But what happens oftentimes is when we wrestle that out with God, whatever the situation is, eventually he leads us to a place where we find freedom. Not always freedom from the situation. Sometimes it's freedom in the situation. But it's freedom nonetheless. And the result and the outcome of that is that that person is then able to give good counsel to other people. There are many times that I'll come home after a day of counseling here at the church. and My wife will ask me how the day went, you know, and I'll tell her, oh, I had counseling today. And, you know, I don't get too specific or personal, you know, even though, you know, we're not like a talky people. But I'll I'll just tell her sometimes I'll say these words. I'll say, you know, I, I said this to this person and that person who heard it has no idea the price that I paid to be able to say that to them and, and what I mean by that is that sometimes The things that you and I go through that are Extremely hard and that we pay a high price physically mentally spiritually in order to overcome those hurdles Sometimes the very reason why we went through that wrestling Is so that we would know how to help someone that's going through it later on in life deal with the issue that they're going through and do you know that sometimes there's no other reason for a trial that we go through than that alone sometimes the very reason you're in a situation where you feel trapped and where you're wrestling and you want freedom is so that sometime in the future once you found it you can share with someone else that's going through something similar and say you know what i've been where you are and if you look down from where you are right now you're going to see my footprint on the path and there's hope for you god's going to bring you through this Naphtali is the one whose wrestling led to freedom so that he could help others He moves on from Naphtali to Joseph And we're not going to spend much time on Joseph because we've studied his entire life piece by piece But he says that Joseph is a fruitful bough By a well whose branches run over the wall The archers have grieved him and shot at him and hated him But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, that's a multitude of descendants. The blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. If you're going to name Joseph, he would be called the faithful leader. And to wear his shoes tonight, you see a man whose God had a plan for his life and in spite of great adversity, he overcame opposition, persecution, isolation, and pain through the means of prayer, God's help and God's shepherding providence. And because he endured the temptations and overcame the trials, the outcome is that he obtained fruit beyond his borders. The blessings of heaven, which are gifts, wisdom, and understanding, the blessings of earth, which were the provision and offspring, and words that Jacob uses that I think are among the most beautiful in all the Bible. He says, To the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. And I don't even know what that means. I want it though. It means that the blessings of Joseph's life have reached from earth even to heaven, to the boundaries of the everlasting hills. What did he do to obtain that? He just endured the temptations and the trials and the struggles that he needed to to get where he was going. As we were hiking Catterskill on Monday, I have a bad... um, I don't know what the word is. Georgia, what's the word? It's not a habit, it's, it's a custom, it's a pro- practice. I get too close to the edge. I climb dangerous things. It calls out to me, I don't know why. But if it's just nature and, and it's steep, I need to be near it and on it, you know, and the whole thing. And George, I forget that my kids are watching. You know, and they're not allowed to do what I do and all. But Georgia just says, I'm just afraid of what you're sowing into them. And someday I'm just afraid we're going to hear that somebody fell or something. The whole thing. And then I say, okay, you're right. I'm sorry And the whole thing. But I started thinking about what, you know, this whole thing. And I was thinking about when Jesus was standing on the precipice of the temple. when he was, Because I was trying to justify what I was doing. Was, you know. So I was thinking about when Jesus was standing on the precipice of the temple. But here's what, here's what, what got me is that Satan came to him while he was on the edge and said, throw yourself down from here because it's written, you know, the angels will help you and nothing can happen to you and you're invincible and it's not going to happen to me and the whole, you know, the whole thing. And, and Jesus responded and he said this, it is written that you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And there was a temptation that came to Jesus to put himself in a presumptuous position where his plan could be interrupted by an early death. That's what Satan wanted. He wanted the purpose of Jesus coming to be interrupted by a fall. And every temptation is for that very purpose. Every temptation that you face as a Christian is a plot of Satan to try to keep you from fulfilling the purpose that God has for you. Joseph became who Joseph was Because he endured under the pressures of that temptation And if you're being tempted here tonight in the body of christ It's worth it to resist that temptation through prayer The providence of god and taking that door of escape when god gives it to you It's worth it in every way the final brother is benjamin and he's called the self destroyer It says in verse 27 that benjamin shall raven as a wolf In the morning, he will devour the prey, and at night, he will divide the spoil. Again, the prophecy is obscure. Where this came from and what it's making reference to in Benjamin's future history, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if anybody actually is. But I do know this, that whenever you read about a wolf in the Bible, it's always a negative connotation. Jesus said they will come as wolves in sheep's clothing. The wolf is bad. Paul said that after my departure, grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Wolves are bad. So wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, in the book of Judges, what we see of the tribe of Benjamin is that they gave themselves over to sin on a level that was so bad it mirrored Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm not, I'm not going to get into the whole reference, but in the process of falling into sin that hard, the tribe was almost completely erased in their existence. There was only a few that were left after the purging, after sin finished its course and ran its course in them. And thus Benjamin was a self-destructive tribe, and it came by giving themselves over to sin. When you and I as Christians flirt with sin thinking that we're going to be able to control it. It's an inevitability that we will find ourselves doing things that we thought we were never capable of. That's what happened to the tribe of Benjamin and through it they became almost completely destroyed. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 17 says, "Be not overmuch wicked, for why should you die before your time?" And I believe that sometimes there is a place where a Christian Can give themselves over to sin To a degree where God says In order to save the soul I'm going to have to take them home early Don't be a self-destructor And there are self-destructors in the body of Christ And the mirror of the word Shows it to us The remainder of the book Summarizes this way I promised you, right? I respect your time and your attention span Jacob says As he finishes his words that he wants to be gathered to his people and buried up in the land of Israel. He specifically asked them to bury him next to Leah in the cave of Machpelah. In the close of the chapter, in verse 33, it says that when Jacob made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed, and he yielded up the ghost and was gathered to his people. What a way to go. Don't you wish you could just say your last words and say, yeah, I'm done, and then just kind of pick your feet up in the bed, close your eyes, and launch off into eternity. I'm struck by his lack of fear. He's not at all worried or anxious about this. He knows exactly where he's going. The next 15 verses, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 50, highlight the mourning and grief that was experienced by those that were left behind. They knew where Jacob was going, and they knew they would see him again, but it didn't insulate them from feeling the pangs of death. And it's a normal, natural thing for us to experience grief when someone passes away. There was a very great mourning by even the Egyptians over the passing of Jacob. And so they bring him to his place, they bury him, they make a great mourning for him. And then in verses 15, all the way up through verse 21, there's kind of a resurgence of old guilt. Now that Jacob is dead... The brothers of Joseph are afraid that Joseph is going to take vengeance because of the whole (laughs) sold him into slavery thing that happened all those years ago. And Joseph hears about it and he says, whoa, guys, no, 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 that's gone. It's under the blood. I'm, I'm not going to seek vengeance on you. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I see the hand of God in the grit, don't worry. And here's what it speaks to you and I, is that sometimes people sin against us. And that sin costs us dearly because of what they did. And and, and there's reconciliation, and there's even life on the other side of it. But I want you to think about this and just be sensitive to it. Is that sometimes guilt hangs on. And if someone has maybe sinned against you, and you forgave it, and you've moved on, be sensitive to the fact that they might still be feeling guilty about that. And you know what you can do to set them free? Is you can go to them and say, hey... I just want you to know that whatever is in the past is past. It's gone. It's erased from my memory. It's as though God took it away. And I want you to know that you're free. There's nothing being held on anymore. That's what Joseph essentially does. And he realizes the way he's able to do that is he sees God in the grit. God was in all of that. He used it. Can you see God in the bad things that other people have done to you? Because if you sift around long enough in the wreckage of it, you're going to find him there. And Joseph was able to do that. And then finally, in closing the chapter, the last days in the death of Joseph. He dies before his brothers, about 110 years old. They're there at his bed when he himself is passing away. And he gives them a commandment concerning his bones. He says, hey guys, I don't want to be entombed in Egypt. That's not my place. When you and your descendants go back into Canaan, make sure they know. Take my bones with them. My seed will be planted here for now. But I want it uprooted, extracted, and planted in Canaan in the end. And then the book ends with these words. Look at the last verse of Genesis chapter 50. It says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And as we close out our study and close out the book, I'll point out to you this. The book of Genesis begins with the words, in the beginning, and it ends with the words, buried in a coffin in Egypt. And do you know that every one of our lives here tonight begin and end the exact same way? Every one of our lives begin with, in the beginning, and they end with, in a coffin, in, you know, you fill in the blanks. But here's the amazing thing: is that everything that took place between those two bookends was extremely important and purposeful in what would come in the future for both the individuals and also those that remained. And that's true for you and I as well. Yeah, we're born, and one day every one of us is leaving here, probably in a coffin or otherwise. But everything that happens in the meantime is purposeful and designed by God, and it sows something both into future generations... And also into our eternity and what we'll experience, either with God if we know Christ, or, if we don't, another destiny completely. But tonight, in light of all the things that we heard, and I know that we heard a lot, we stood in a lot of people's shoes tonight. And every one of us had the opportunity, in the will of God, and hopefully in the providence of God, to look into the mirror of the Word and to see ourselves reflected back upon us. And that presents us with an opportunity. Maybe you tonight, you're the judge. Maybe tonight, you're Gad. (laughs) Maybe tonight, Benjamin. And looking back at you is some image. What happens when you look in the mirror physically? I know what happens to me. I'm usually like, oh God, turn off to dim the lights, dim it, dim it, dim it, fog it. I don't want to see it, I don't want to see it. But every now and again, I look in the mirror, and I see something that I don't like, and I'm motivated to change it. I don't want that there anymore, you know, or those pounds there anymore. Or I want it changed. I want it gone. Tonight, spiritually speaking, you may be looking in the mirror saying, you know what? There's things in my life. I don't want to carry those things to my grave, and I don't want to hand those things on to my descendants. I want those things gone. And you ask the question, how is it done? How do I see change take place in my life? I think it begins with one word. It starts with discipline, doesn't it? I mean, physically speaking, if I want to make a decision to see something change, it's going to require some discipline. There's something that that I'm going to have to do. There's a part that I play in seeing the change take place. That's physical. Well, spiritually, it's kind of the same thing. It begins with a decision that I want to do something about this. But then what happens is, that as I identify the weak area, then, and here it is, I determine direction. So it begins with a decision that I need some discipline, and thus I need to determine a direction. And the way that I do that is I ask God to show me what he wants my life to look like. And I ask, listen, this is important. I ask that he give me purposeful leading in how to become or how to change the things that need to change. And then finally, and it's the fifth D, I do the thing that God has put before me, whatever that might be. But it's going to take some discipline. I mean, you look at a trained athlete. They don't get that way by sitting around or being lucky enough to be born with it. They make a decision that they don't want to any longer be what they are. And then they look for direction as to how am I going to obtain that goal. And then they pursue that purpose with their actions. And spiritually, it's the same thing. Now, please don't mishear me. And the worship team can come. I am done. Landing the plane very quickly. Might not even have time to get up here. It isn't effort that ends in frustration because I'm not strong enough to follow through. It's yielding and asking and then following his leading as he walks me through the process of becoming what he wants me to be. And that's something that involves relationship, but it's available to every single one of us. And so whoever you might be tonight, standing in front of the mirror and looking in the face of what you... Wish you weren't, but at the same time, what you know you can be. I pray in Jesus' name that in you there's a point of decision where you say, you know what, God, I don't want to be this anymore. I don't want to become more of this later in my life. And I want to see it changed. God, would you lead me? Would you give me direction? Would you step by step carry me through and make it that I'm no longer what I hate? Father, we thank you tonight for these things. Thank you for your truth and for your word. We ask you, Lord, to help us as we consider and ponder, as we allow the mirror and the light of the word to search out our hearts. We pray that you would help us, Lord. Every one of us here, every one of us here, Lord, we feel grossly inadequate as we look at the perfect Son of God reflected back upon us. But would you please facilitate change? Would you do in us what we can't and make us what we are not? We know it's not by might it's not by power, but it's by your spirit, says the Lord. So give us strength in these things. Help us, Lord. We trust in you and we look to you. You said, Lord Jesus, that if we continue in your word, that we'll know the truth and that the truth will make us free. And that whom the sun sets free is free indeed. So would you help us, Lord? that we would change from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And we ask it in sincerity and in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.